Turn in your Bibles tonight. We're going to finish up the book of Hosea, both chapters 13 and 14, and some very, very, very interesting passages of Scripture, and I want to share with you uh, a few tidbits that will get you excited about where we're going, because we're going to stay in some prophetic books here for a while, and so uh, here in chapter 13, chapter 14, as we wrap up, we really find, again, this picture of God's amazing love, and as we as we think on that, it is so important that we remember who God is, not who people are, because people rarely can express love in things like discipline and warfare and those types of things. But God, in fact, because of his nature being love, he is love, he's always love, he's never not love, uh, even in bringing evil kings into power, even in using things that we would say are disasters uh, over and over and over again, God is still being loving, and God is still being, to some degree, in that sense, a God who is trying to present love to the world. And it is one of the most loving things that you can do, is when you see something that's horribly wrong, is to correct it. And in these two chapters, we're going to see God finish his correction, uh, which I believe this is speaking of a time yet forward in, in the prophetic sense, but it also spoke during that time to the nation of Syria. And so we're going to see him begin to do this. And we're going to then see the signs of, of what will happen when people don't hear the message. And as I've shared with you before, one of my great fears of our nation very specifically is that you could say on a human sense, and, and in that specific sense, that we've never been more prosperous, we've never been more tolerant, uh, we've, we've never had more opportunity, uh, we have never seen more equality. Uh, all of these things that on the outside seem like they're really, really, really wonderful. But throughout the history of Israel and throughout the history of the world, those things which we are currently experiencing have never equaled good in the eyes of God. They've always produced exactly the opposite. As mankind, in essence, takes charge of his environment and basically becomes his own God, it's always produced a downfall for that country, for that area of the world. And I will show you very shortly exactly what I'm speaking of. That was the case of Israel then. It is the case of present modern-day Israel. And I would share with you that I believe it is the case of present modern-day United States of America. And because God's character does not ever change... He's not going to adapt to our social mores. He's not going to adapt to our American way of life. He's not going to change what he thinks about certain behaviors and aspects of humanity. He changes not, says the Lord. So whatever was his view, in this case, two and a half thousand years ago, of a specific area of humanity, life, behavior, it's still his view today. 
He hasn't moved. He hasn't budged an inch. He isn't swayed by modern scientific advances. He isn't swayed by the human genome project. He is not swayed because we now understand more about the minute, absolute, infinitesimally small particles that make up our universe. He's not worried about particle physics somehow making him outdated and outmoded. He's not worried about the expansive uh, view we now have of our universe. I change not, says the Lord. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So remember that as we finish this book. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time in your word, and as we study it, God, make us strong. God, cause us to just be bold and firm in our conviction of truth. And God, it's so easy for us to fall into the trap of just being socially acceptable. Lord, when socially acceptable has never worked out well for any civilization ever on the face of this earth. Lord, it hasn't benefited Europe. It will not benefit us. It didn't benefit Greece or Rome. Lord, we we look now to you to speak to us as your children. Lord, we have ears that are ready to hear. Give us minds that are ready to receive. Bury these truths that we might, Lord, not sin against you, but, Lord, work for you. It's in your precious name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. First John there, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love first is of God. And then it goes on to say, And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. For he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So that phrase, you can just keep it with you wherever you go. Everything God does, everything God is, he has a singular motivation and purpose, he is love. In his correction, he's love. In his instruction, he's love. In his redemption, he was love. In our sanctification, he is love. You see, all of these things from God's perspective are simply a manifestation of who he is and what he is, which is love. We keep that in view always, forever, everything, even in judgment, even in punishment. And that's so hard for us to understand. As I shared with you last time as we were in uh, chapter 12, Deuteronomy chapter 8, it began all the way back in the times of Moses. He, He said there in Deuteronomy 8, You should know in your heart as much as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. So he's always going to correct stuff that's wrong. And he will do that incrementally. He often does that monumentally slow. I'm surprised. I don't know if you are, but I'm actually surprised that the earth is still here. When I I think of what mankind has done to itself and what it does to, you know, we do as human beings to each other, it is absolutely the only answer I have for you is God is love. It could be the only answer, because there would be no reason for him to ride along and let us kill each other by the hundreds of thousands and millions. There would be no reason for him to have allowed Stalin to ever come onto this earth unless he was loving. There's got to be a purpose for it, because if he just allowed it because he's sovereign, then I tell you his word is a lie, because he's not love. 
There is no way in the world that God could allow those evil things that have occurred throughout history to occur unless there was a motivation behind it that was greater than the things that happened. And I believe with all of my heart that that motivation is love, as hard as that is for us to understand. And so we see several things here as we open verse 1 of chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, remember Ephraim refers to the ten northern tribes. It represents everything save Judah, which is roughly located around the area of Jerusalem. So there were the priests who were under Aaron and also those under Levi. So Judah, the tribe of Judah, is there. And he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. And I want you to hang tight with me for a moment. We skip over Baal's name rather regularly because Baal was such a fixture in the Old Testament. Probably all of you know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You you can all think back probably to your days in Sunday school and you got taught that one. Here comes amazing Elijah all by himself and he confronts the 200 prophets of Baal and they're chanting and jumping up and down. Well, there are probably a few things about Baal worship that you don't know. And I can tell you, having been to the top of Mount Carmel, to the place where this happened with Elijah, as you stand there, it's a rather large mountain that takes up much of central Israel. Uh, It's the high point on the horizon there. And at the top of it now, there sits a monastery. Adjacent to that monastery, it's a site that's believed that this altar was built. It was a high place. And I'm telling you things, these things for a reason. It was a high place because all places of worship were generally high places. Secondarily, all places were generally forested that were places of worship of false gods. And so they were the most beautiful places in the area. And it was there in those wonderful forests on those high places with amazing views that the altars were built. And the altar was built to Baal. Baal was half cow and half man. And the worship of Baal went something like this. The principles, the pillars of Baalism were child sacrifice, sexual promiscuity and immorality of both kinds, both heterosexual and homosexual, and then pantheism, which is nothing more than the worship of creation. Worship of everything. God in everything, everything is God. So when you put those things together, you have the centrality of what it meant to worship Baal. Highly sexualized, both hetero and homosexual. Worshipped the death of innocent children and worshipped creation. Now I ask you, what country do you know that that is the basic mantra? We worship sexual immorality, and if you don't believe that, you have not read a newspaper in probably 20 years. We kill more unborn children than any other nation on earth. 
and we worship the creation. We are the most environmentally friendly nation on earth. And it's not that the environment isn't to be taken care of. Matter of fact, your Bible says we have been given stewardship over the earth. We're supposed to take care of it, but we are not supposed to worship it. And I can tell you, being a child of the 60s, that we worship dirt. Okay? We worship trees. We worship plants. We worship Sparky the Wonder Dog. We worship everything about creation. And I love dogs. Got two of them. I don't even want you to know how I treat them because it's embarrassing. Some of you have seen it. Okay, it's... You're sworn to secrecy. You took an oath. You didn't know it. Love my dogs. But I don't worship my dogs. And in this case, the adults would gather around a high place in the forest. They would begin to sing and chant and dance around and then throw their clothes off. Woodstock happened a long time before New York, okay? They would then begin to engage, unfortunately, in burning their children alive on the arms of Baal. You see, because all of that promiscuity produced children that nobody wanted. And so they would take the children and they would heat up the statue of Baal, which was usually 40 to 60 feet tall, bronze at least in its center, and they would stoke it up. Its cousin was Molech, who was worshipped by the Canaanites. They would take their children. Once the arms got nice and red hot, they would simply take their children and put them in the arms of Baal and chant, Baal is God, refresh, O earth. The reason I'm telling you this is this is exactly why the Assyrians came. This is why God, in essence, destroyed ten of the twelve tribes, killed them, and took them into captivity. During those times, they could engage in homosexual conduct or heterosexual conduct. But I would tell you that that's pretty much what Romans chapter 1 says we're not supposed to do. Amen? And so they worshipped in the high places. They worshipped the groves of trees. They worshipped sex. They worshipped the death of the most innocent among them. And they worshipped literally the earth itself. The whole point of Baal worship was to bring rain that would bring fruitfulness to the earth. So they prayed, O Baal, we worship you so that you might bring fruit from the earth. I'm telling you, not a good road to be on. You know, as our forefathers traveled across this great nation to bring what we know as civilization to this particular coast, you know, very often people like us, we look at, you know, that era of time and go, man, wouldn't it have been awesome? You know, we could really get back to nature. I guarantee you this is not what our forefathers had envisioned. It was not to come across and worship the dirt 
They were largely Christians, almost exclusively, really. And, and as they traveled, they didn't worship the dirt. They worshiped Yahweh, Lord of hosts. That was the problem that Israel had. They'd been given so much. And when you look at our nation, have we not been given much? It's mind-boggling what we have. Verse 2, now they sin more and more. You see, they had been given everything. Their response in utter arrogance was to simply, hey, we're going to send more. This is all on us. We can do whatever we want. And have made for themselves molded images, idols of silver, according to their skill, and all of its work of craftsmen. In other words, these, these gods that they made were some of their finest works of art. These gods that we make are some of our finest works of art. I don't know how many of you watch How It's Made, but they have How It's Made dream cars. It, I, I keep a towel by because I drool a lot when I'm looking at those $2 million, 1,000-horsepower Lamborghinis. You know, I mean, it's we've made some pretty fine things, amen? And don't people sell their souls to get them? Don't they forfeit everything, including their wives, their husbands, their children, their families, their fortune? They forfeit everything for the sake of something they crafted with their hands. Remember what I said. God doesn't change. That's why when you read the first chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, you remember what Solomon said as he wrote that? There is nothing new under the sun. It may smell a little differently. It may look a little differently. It may go a little faster. There might be more of it. There may be more people doing it. But the basic things that have bothered humankind since day one bother humankind right now. And they say to them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. In other words, they're saying, God, we really don't care about you. We care about the stuff we've made. And therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud. Now look at this. The morning cloud, you've all seen it. It's there only in the morning. It exists until the sun, S-U-N, comes out, or in this case, until the sun, S-O-N, shines on it, and it's shown for what it is. It should be like the morning cloud, like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown from the threshing floor if you're with us on Sunday. Every last kernel is going to be collected. Anything that's wheat, God's going to collect, but everything that's chaff, He's going to burn. And he knows the difference. He's not put off by our pseudo-Christianity. He's not put off by the wonderful case that we made. I read an article today. You may have seen it. It's about a professor at Azusa Pacific University, which, by the way, was founded by the Mennonites. Uh, it's a Christian university. It's one of the largest here in California. It's one of the largest in the world. But he is not a he. He is a she. And APU has taken the step to say, you know what, we're a Christian university. You can't be a transgendered person. They believed all along that she was she. 
But now he is saying that he's a he when he is a she. I know you're confused. Stay with me. Anatomically, genetically, this is a woman who has declared himself to be a man. And he makes the most impassioned plea. When you read the story, you're just like, you almost get drawn into it. It's like, this person really believes these things. Married twice as a woman. Has children as a mom. But I just never felt comfortable in a woman's... I tried to be a Christian woman and I just couldn't. God's not okay with it no matter how great the argument is. And I feel for this person. I could even understand the struggle. But I believe God said what he meant and meant what he said. This person is an example of exactly what's wrong with America. Because we are so convincing in the argument that we cause people to disbelieve what God said. And that's the danger. That's what was going on here. Like chaff blown from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. You see, as he prophesied, what he was really saying is your arrogance is staggering. You think that all of your words and your arguments and your genuineness about your sin makes it okay? Have you not met people who are absolutely genuine about their sin? As I read this article, absolutely genuine about his sin. Her sin. The sin. Believe that somehow exempt talked in Christianese like you can't believe, was a professor of theology. Can you imagine how many people got messed up by Dr. Acker? How many people are wandering around? Well, you know, I, maybe it is all genetic after all. God isn't going to agree with our pseudoscience. They were arrogant. And here the tribe of Ephraim had created problems for Gideon and Jephthah, and they worshipped Jeroboam the first. They had done all these things, and they, remember, had false humility. Oh, we'll return to the Lord. And then a week later, they're right back up on Mount Carmel, worshipping Baal again. Basically, Ephraim had abandoned Jehovah God for Baal. Make no mistake. Any nation, any people group that does that is in deep trouble. And God is going to do exactly what God needs to do to get their attention, stem the tide, and turn them around. Including destroy them. And that's why when I look at America, it's like, <laughs> we need to elect... The types of people, they, they may not even be Christians, but at least have a Christian morality. At least have a Christian worldview. 
at least be someplace in the ballpark. Because when you put people in power who have the power to affect massive quantities of people, millions of people, in our case, what goes here in America eventually reaches around the globe, doesn't it? We have some responsibility. I will tell you in advance, the story of Job gives us a pretty clear picture of that responsibility. Next, we see the nation's ingratitude as we pick up in verse 4. You see, it's one thing to kind of thumb your nose at God. It's another thing to be ungrateful. And yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. He he just simply draws him back. He says, wasn't I God in Egypt? You remember you went into captivity for 400 years because you did these stupid, dumb things. What didn't you get about that? Was there something that got a disconnect? How many generations have to perish in the wilderness before you figure out I meant what I said? And you shall know, no God but me. Where does that take you back to? Right to the Ten Commandments. Amen? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Amen? God doesn't change. So when he says things like that, it's what he means. For there is no Savior besides me. He's making an illusion about himself here. He's saying nobody can save you but me. For the Lord himself will provide a lamb. Speaking forward of Jesus. Nobody can save you. What I said then still holds true now. I knew you in the wilderness. Notice how he's drawing them right back to where they were. I knew you in the wilderness. Exactly what you were doing. Exactly what you were thinking. And you think that somehow I've changed. And in the land of great drought, when they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. And therefore, underline that, they forgot me. Very frequently, prosperity brings a forgetting of God. And sometimes I wonder, when you look back at the, at the, what we call the greatest generation here in America, when you look back at that, that generation that was the generation that went off to fight the Second World War, when you look at that generation, America wasn't rich, we were just coming out of the Great Depression. Basically, nobody was really rich except for the rich, which there's always rich people. The rich and the poor will always be here. But there was no middle class. There was mostly poor. And because of that, guess who America needed? God. That's what it says in Revelation. I am rich, and I have need of nothing. And therefore they forgot God. It's a pattern in mankind's history. The more stuff we have, the more self-reliant we are, the better off we have it, the more we have a tendency to forget God. So a personal lesson for each of us. God gives you more. Don't forget to give more to God. 
Don't forget to do more for the one who gave you what you have. Because the moment you reverse that trend and you begin to say, I got all this stuff. I don't need God. I don't need church. Don't need my Bible. Don't need to pray. I got all my stuff. You're right back where Israel was. You're right back where every nation goes when they forget God. They forgot me. Interesting that the word Ephraim actually means fruitful. God intended them to be fruitful. And for a while they were fruitful. But then they forgot God and they became desolate. So no matter what your name is, and I've met people that have had more stuff than anybody should ever have. But I can tell you, they die just like the rest of us. And they are miserable just like anyone who doesn't have the Lord. And he goes on and picks up in verse 7 here in chapter 13. And as you kind of look and play these things forward, obviously these things happened literally at the time to Israel. And so, now notice, therefore they forgot me in verse 6. And so, I will be to them like a lion. Now, if it was a lion of the tribe of Judah, I'd be going, yes, but that's not what it says. It's like a lion who ravages the weak, who goes after that, you know, and you've all seen it. In my day, it was Marlon Perkins there in Mutual of Omaha's Wild of Wild Kingdom. And Jim always got the, the gnarly job of chasing down. Marlon was behind the scenes going, and there goes Jim. He's chasing after a cheetah right now, you know. He had the funkiest voice. And, oh, it looks like he's gotten a little too close to the cheetah. (laughs) If you got next to a lion, you got eaten. And I will be like a lion, like a leopard. By the road I will lurk. You can get the picture. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. Any of you had that experience here on the mountain? We've had bear cubs in the tree outside of our house, okay? Don't get between mama bear and cubs, unless you want to be mauled. It's not a good thing. All these similes, these metaphors. I will tear open their rib cage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, you were destroyed. Now remember, God does this because He loves them. Can you imagine how far gone they were that God would do this to them? So when somebody says to you, no, I don't think God has His hand in anything that's other than just good fluffy stuff, take them to this book. It's just simply not true. God has throughout time used evil kings, evil kingdoms, desperate situations, dire situations, famines, plagues, disease. He's used all of it to get the attention of mankind. And in fact, he actually says, I will be like these things to them because they forgot me. But your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other? You know what he's doing now? He's drawing a contrast. (laughs) Hey, dummies, where's Baal? Can Baal deliver you? 
if all your chanting and your promiscuity and everything else that you're doing right now, is that helping a lot? You feel a bunch better about yourself because you're engaged in those things? That he may save you in all your cities. Where is that other? When calamity comes, isn't it interesting? You remember 9-11? Everybody went back to church. They knew where to turn. They knew where the truth was. You ever wondered why they aren't still there? Because it went like this, and then like this. And your judges, to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. Well, you know, the Supreme Court knows better than God. Hmm. You, you see, we often look at these passages and we almost think they're funny. Oh, that's, that's silly. I mean, that, that's just crazy. Kings, princes. But don't we make kings and princes out of Miley Cyrus? Yeah, we do. Don't kid yourself. Don't we make them out of athletes who make tens of millions of dollars a year who then go home and beat their wives half to death? Murder people? Guys like Aaron Hernandez? What an amazingly gifted athlete. He was getting paid 270 $5,000 an hour. An hour for his football career. $275,000 an hour. Yes, $1.5 million a game. And yet he can't stay out of a gang-banging lifestyle and goes and shoots a couple of people. Yeah, we make princes out of all kinds of dorks. People who ought not be princes. Idolize them, worship them, wear their jerseys around. Oh, the Supreme Court said it's legal. I gave you a king in my anger. God gave them Saul. And that didn't work out so well, did it? We want a king. We want a king. You've got to give us a king because we want a king. We want somebody to give us everything. We don't want to work for anything. We want everything given to us. We want our piece of the America. There is nothing new under the sun. And took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. And the sorrows of a woman and childbirth shall come upon him. And he is like an unwise son. In other words, he's so dumb, doesn't even know when it's time to come out of the womb. And in case you didn't know, I don't think you think about that too much. I'm pretty sure that happens pretty much automatically. But it's so bad that even that didn't work. For he should not stay long where children are born. 
I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I'll redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. He's saying, look, I have the keys of life and death. God does. Man doesn't have that. I, I read yet another article. As you can tell, I read a lot. Stephen Hawking. One of the great minds of art, no question. He's got more brain cells in his toenails than I have in my whole brain. But he now says, you know, we can live on after death. We can transfer all of the contents of our minds to a computer. Can I just be the first one to not sign up for that? Because if you think that's life, you are absolutely insane. That's not life. I'm not a collection of thoughts. I'm a soul who has a mind who walks around in a material body because that's how God designed me. You'll never escape the grave that way. And though he is fruitful among his brethren, man, have we not been fruitful? Look at some of the things we build. I get amazed at the things we build. And yet they can't save us. The east wind shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and then his spring shall become dry, his fountain be dried up, and he shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty. For she's rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed open to pieces and their women ripped open. He says, look at all this stuff. Man, you guys are are making your own bed. And you're going to have to lie in it. And it's not going to be good. And by the way, Paul quotes this particular passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15.55. He quotes the guarantee over death and over sin, and he gives credit to this passage of Scripture. He says God said he would be that, and he is. His name is Jesus. He has victory over it. Your Bible actually declares that the Lord will not relent. In other words, he says, if the only path you give me is for me to beat you into submission so that you have no other way out, I will do that if that's what you make me do. Because I love you. Chapter 14. Then he says, and I love that 14 ends this way, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. God recognizes our weaknesses, but thank, thank the Lord that Second Timothy chapter 2 is true. He is faithful when we are faithless. Amen? He remains even when we don't. And so he says to them, Return, O Israel, to your Lord, your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. He's going to plow up hearts. He's going to till the soil. He's going to allow disaster to come. He's going to let everything crumble around people who trust in anything but him what he does he's always done it doesn't mean that instantaneously one little tiny sin and your last week's barbecue on the inside of the grill 
You know what I'm talking about. Charcoal, charcoal. You know, you look at those little scrapings there in the back. You don't even know how they could even stay there. They've been burnt over so many times. Some people have a view of God that way. It's just like, man, if I do anything, he's just going to fry me, barbecue me, send me off. That's not what God's saying. What he's saying is, is that I want you to turn. And if you don't turn, then I will do everything that is necessary short of killing you to get you back where you belong. So count on all your little gods crumbling. When you trust in anything but the Lord, you can count on that being an idol. Where your treasure is, there your heart's also. So if the only thing you think about is all the stuff you got, then you, as a child of God, count on, because God loves you, Him tearing down your little world. Because He wants you to worship Him. He wanted the Jews to worship Him. The good news is, verse 2, He'll receive us. And I love these promises as we close this book up. He will receive us. I'll take words with you. Return to the Lord and say to Him, Take away all the iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Look, God, we're wrong. And I love this about God. You realize what He's promised. He said, if you turn, I'll restore. If you turn, I'll receive. If you do your part, you can be sure that I will do mine. You can trust me with this. Assyria will not save us. Notice how now the turn away from the flesh and away from the things of the world. You see, the Jews had trusted in Assyria. Matter of fact, there were some in Ephraim that have said, you know what? Assyria is so powerful, and we're not seeing the, the God that we have worshipped all of these centuries. We're not seeing him do what we want him to do, so we're going to turn to Assyria. That's actually how the Assyrians gained entry most of the time into the most of the civilizations that they conquered. They sent an advanced team. That advanced team came with the stories like, oh, we Assyrians are not so bad. I mean, after all, we're nice guys. I mean, yeah, we stick people on poles, we burn them alive and treat them like candles, but forget that part. Kind of wave the Yoda hand and just look over here. And they would try and convince the, the people of the lands they were trying to conquer that they weren't all that bad. And so it made sense to join forces with the Assyrians. Well, they're going to bring us water. They said they'll let us keep our fields. The world always says those things. It'll be better. You know, you'll get a new car and a new house and a new spouse and maybe even a new dog. And you might get a new this and a new that and it'll be all new and you'll be really happy. And then the bills start to come. And then you lose your job. And then all of a sudden, that spouse that you married that, you know, was in it for the money is, well, you don't have any money. Assyria will not save us, will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are a god, 
for in you the fatherless finds mercy. That's genuine love. Mercy to the fatherless. Remember, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy to the fatherless. You see, at this time, guess what the fatherless got from Baal? Burned. If you did not have a father, could not prove your lineage, and you were born under a cult of Baal worship, you instantaneously died. God's contrasting himself with the false gods. You know why our country is such a mess in a practical sense? The breakdown of the nuclear family, specifically homes without fathers. I believe that's the largest sociologic ill that we face. We got single family homes, single parent homes rather. And I can tell you this, children need mom and dad. And there's no substitute for it. God will be that. David understood this principle and he actually said, For you do not desire sacrifice in the 51st Psalm. You don't delight in burnt offering. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, contrite heart. These, O God, you will not cast out. He couldn't care less about all our stuff. It's all his anyway. You know, sometimes I'm amazed at people and we even get them here. And they come in and you know, they kind of give you the little story, you know. Well, yeah, I just, I'm trying to find a church home. And then they go about telling you how much stuff they have and how much they can do and how many things they can give and all of this and a bunch of that. And it's all about what they can do, not about who they worship. God's looking for brokenness, humility, contrite heart. Second thing, He'll restore us. These are just four very simple points. I will heal their backsliding. Notice what He says. He said, I'm going to destroy you. And yet to the person that he says, I will destroy you if you don't turn, he says, if you do turn, I will love you freely. That word freely means without boundary. Without boundary. I won't put anything on you but love. It will have no bounds. For my anger is turned away from him. It's the same thing that Jeremiah spoke to the people in the 14th chapter of Jeremiah, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for the backslidings are many. We've sinned against you. Love us for your name's sake, because that's who you are. And God did. You see, when sin gets into the inner person and it's not dealt with, it's like an insidious infection. When you let those things fester, I guarantee you there was not one person who lived in the northern kingdom in Ephraim who set out 
to become a worshiper of Baal. They started worshiping Yahweh, Lord of hosts. But a little bit at a time, they started watching Ephraim TV, Channel 7. I don't know. They started tuning in to Baal Radio, 101.9. They started watching that show on the internet, you know, Baal Lives, or so. I don't know. But a little bit at a time, well, you know. I mean, there's a lot of things to like about Baal worship. I mean, really. And they're some of the nicest people you'd ever meet. You ever heard that one? They're some of the nicest people. you. Those Baal worshipers, I mean, they'll give you the shirt off their back and they'll take the shirt off of yours too. And your pants. And pretty much anything else you happen to be wearing. You see, people don't normally set out to walk away from God. But little by little, that influence creeps in. And at first it's maybe some area of your life that you're unguarded in. And then pretty soon it's the areas that you're guarded in. And then you don't even care anymore. Like I'm all into this sin thing. That's what happened to Ephraim. They weren't a bunch of pagans to start with. They got that way because they didn't deal with sin. And they didn't deal with it decisively. They didn't say no. They didn't resist and flee. You see, it creeps in. And for any of you that have ever had a severe sickness, you know how at first you just kind of don't feel quite right, you know? Just like you kind of got... Like whenever I get the flu, it starts off with this like kind of kind of thing in my throat, you know. It's just like, well, that feels kind of weird. And then pretty soon my throat feels like it's, you know, over here and I'm here. And then the rest of my body joins in in the fun. And then you collapse. Amen? It's how sin works. It's like you kind of get a little tickled. Like, ooh, that doesn't feel quite normal. But you don't do the right thing. You don't go and take some extra vitamins. You don't start down in some tea. You don't do the things necessary to deal with it when it's a little thing. And you let it grow. And all of a sudden, you're on your back wishing you were dead. That's what happened to Ephraim, the northern kingdom. So the same thing had happened to Peter. You remember his pride? Started out as a little thing. It actually started out as him kind of being protective of the Lord Jesus. Amen? Oh man, they'll never get to you, Jesus. And then it's like pulls out his sword. Off goes Malchus's ear. Well, that's not cool. Well, I'd never deny you, Lord. Not only does he deny the Lord, he does it three times. But just like here in this story, what was the response of God? Peter was restored the three times that he denied the Lord. 
Jesus said, you know what, Peter, it's okay. Do you love me? You love me more than these? Upon this church I will build. You see, God wants to be first. Now we can choose to make Him first and stay well. Or we can put Him someplace in the back of the pack and we can get sick. We can start denying the Lord. We can start walking away we shouldn't go. But make no mistake, He he wants to revive us. He wants to restore us. But He's not going to do that until we turn. Verse 5, For I will be like the dew to Israel, and you shall grow like the lily, and lengthen its roots like Lebanon. When, when you're in the, the Jezreel Valley, and you look to the north, Lebanon is hills and they're green. And it's very dry. And as you head further south, it turns into the area around the Dead Sea. So what he's saying is, do you want to live like up there near Mount Hermon where all that fresh water and that beautiful green is, or do you want to stay down here where it's dry and dusty? Choice is yours. If you want to be there, you've got to turn and go there. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. His fragrance like Lebanon. And those who dwell under the shadow shall return, and they shall be like revived grain and grow like a vine. Aren't vines weird? Do that grow ten feet a day? Take off. I want to grow like that in the Lord. I want to just be tapped into some water and just suck it up. Their ascent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Do you know anything about wine, the way that you smell it? It's actually the alcohol that's evaporating. It carries the flavor of the grapes into the air. So I want to be like that. I want to be so fragrant that I instantaneously vaporize so that you can tell who I am. For I have heard and I observed him. For I am like a green cypress and your fruit is found in me. You see, he wants to revive. He says, man, all this deadness, that's not my plan. I want to revive you. And so... You can rebel against the Lord and continue to stumble. You can return to the Lord and walk securely in His ways. The choice is ours. God, of course, wants the latter of those two things. And so what does He say? Who is wise? Deuteronomy 30.19 says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. The choice is ours. Who is wise, let him understand these things. In other words, I've said it. I mean it. The choice is yours to do it. Who is prudent? In other words, who has these things so in the depth of their consciousness that they act on it? Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge correctly. Prudence is actually using it correctly. One is the ability to do it. The other is to actually do it. Who is prudent? Let him know them. Share it. For the ways of the Lord are right, 
and the righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. He simply reminds us, he says, the choice is yours. Choose life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, for the clarity with which your word speaks to us even today. Lord, we believe that there will come a time, because your word declares it, that Israel shall see its Messiah, that you will fill them, as the book of Joel says, with the Spirit. Lord, that they will be gathered together out of that deadness into new life. Lord, we thank you for that promise. For us who have new life, Lord, help us to walk in new life. Help us to not entertain the things that could kill. Lord, help us to turn our eyes from Baal. Lord, help us to not look upon the things that we should not see. Help us to not hear the things that we should not hear. Help us to walk in your ways all of the days of our lives. We thank you that you are faithful even when we are faithless. And we pray, Lord God, that you would just make us into those men and women who walk with you day by day moment by moment, seeking to accomplish your will. Help us to walk in righteousness. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We bless you. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.